0: And I'm going to be reading, if you have your own Bible, from verses 18 through 29. It's going to be on the screen behind me. Um, It's actually uh, got verse 1 and 2, so I'll add that in too as well. Um, But then it's going to go down off the screen. So if you don't have your own Bible, it's on pages 4 and 5 of the bulletin as well, if you need to get your eyes on it as we move on. So hear these words from the book that we love. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. Quote, if even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't know how many of you have watched the show The Mandalorian. It's this Star Wars show on Disney+, a separate part of the Star Wars universe, kind of from the movies, if you're familiar with them at all. But if you're not, it's a story of a bounty hunter who's a member of a people group, the Mandalorians. This is a story about one Mandalorian the show. But he's a member of uh, a people group, the Mandalorians, plural, who live by a shared way of life. For example you never take off your helmet ever in front of other people for your whole life. That's like part of their way of life. Also, part of your way of life is apparently if you encounter a uh, orphan, you have to stay with it until like the orphan lands in a new family. And every time something about their creed comes up in the show, the, the line of the show is, this is the way. You don't question it. It's just, this is the way. And it's two seasons in so far. So, If you're with the show, one of the main plot lines is, what happens when the way, like the creed, the way of your life is really, really tested? Like for example, like one thing that happens in the show is like what happens when the part of the way that is like you have to take care of this kid and keep him safe comes up against having to keep your helmet on? And it does, and so it's like, Okay, how much is this still the way? How much is this part of the way still matter? Are there any, like, fresh expressions of the way? Like, there's this other group of Mandalorians who say yes, and this other group that say no, there's, there's this one way, and it never, ever changes. Here's why I bring all this up. Last week, we started a series about worship, particularly gathered worship, and why, what we, why we do what we do in worship. And... Part of the reason we're doing that now is because we've been shaken. Like, the last year and a half, going online, what was lost, coming back, we're in a new place. And, like, the time, like, the service is different because there's another, you know, church that comes in afterwards. There have been some changes. And so the question is, like, what about Christian worship should always be? And what can and should be contextualized? we started last week. And we're looking at what the scriptures have to say about gathered worship. And it's not just like there's a way of worship because it's by the book. And obviously the book, the Bible, is where we get everything about our faith in life. But also, like, when you actually look at what the scriptures say about worship, we looked at this a little last week, we're going to look at it a lot this week and next you realize that worship on earth is modeled after a pattern of worship that is always happening in heaven. I don't know if you realize that. There are these scenes in the scriptures. We're going to look at just one today. And actually, two much more clear ones next week where there are these visions of worship in heaven. And there's something binding here about the way of worship. And it's been the case across millennia. We don't just change some of those things any more than we could change how things are in heaven. Because we're aligning what we do with what we see. And then there are some things in certain places and in ter- in certain times that do change. And we're going to see more about that as we go along. Today, the main thing we're going to talk about this worship on earth as in heaven idea is the mood of worship the mood of worship, not so much the order of worship. We're going to get there. This is the mood of worship, and it's put really clearly in Hebrews 12, a packed chapter, a confusing chapter in some ways, but I hope to make a few things crystal clear that anytime you come back to this chapter, you'll see things quite clearly that'll make a lot of the other stuff in there make sense. So we're going to talk about the mood of worship today. It's described here in terms of two mountains. Two ways of understanding worship on earth. The writer of Hebrews says, think about it in terms of these two mountains. And if you didn't see it the first time, we'll go back into the text. I'll show you what I mean. He starts by saying, there's this one mountain that you haven't come to when you come to worship. And then there's this other mountain that you really do come to when you come together for worship. Here it is. Verse 18, it's right there on page four in your bulletin. The writer says, You have not come, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice, whose words made the hearers, beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses, Moses, the the prophet of prophets, the man of God who went up the mountain, he's the one who said, I tremble with fear. You haven't come to that mountain when you come to worship. What does all this mean? Let me take a step back for a second. The book of Hebrews is one long sermon. This is a part of the Bible where you get a lot of letters to churches. This is more of a sermon that's given to Christians who have come out of the Jewish faith, and they need help understanding who they now are in Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, who they now are in relationship to the Jewish faith that they have been and in some ways still are a part of. So the writer, if you're familiar with the book, takes them through one part of the Jewish faith after another. Uh, The sacrificial system, which we talked a little bit about last week. Uh, The role of the high priest in Judaism. The role of the tabernacle. He walks through all these things that, that are parts of the Jewish faith. And he talks about how they relate to Jesus. And how Jesus in some way fulfills them or helps realize these things in a fuller or more heavenly or eternal way. Coming back to today, to Hebrews 12, the writer of Hebrews is taking his audience and saying, let's look back at this really important scene in the history of the Jewish people that happens on this really scary mountain. It's the scene of Mount Sinai, if you're familiar with it. It's in Exodus 19. The Israelites have just been freed from slavery in Egypt, and they've come through part of the wilderness, and they come to rest at this mountain where God reveals something of himself to him. Who is this God, this Yahweh, this Jehovah, who just freed us from 400 years of slavery? Who is it? Who is he? What do we know about him? And frankly, the scene is terrifying. This God, they learn, is terrifying. Thunder, lightning fire, smoke, trembling, earthquakes, and a clear verbal warning that if anyone even touches the mountain, they would die. This, it seems, part of the point is, there's this seismic result when a holy God comes to meet with a sinful people. They're being taught something about what God is like. God's really scary. And what I need you to see is, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, we're given this scene for the sole purpose of saying, you have not come to that mountain when you gather for worship. That's not the mountain. That's a real mountain. Something really true about God was revealed there. That mountain matters. It's just the mountain, not the mountain you come to when you come to Jesus Christ. And when you come to be a part of the gathered assembly, and that word is used here in a very key way, assembly to worship. This isn't what you come to when you come to the church. Okay, great. Why do we need to know this? Here's why you need to know it. There was a book that came out, I think almost 30 years ago now, by a guy named Philip Yancey. And it's called What's So Amazing About Grace what's so amazing about grace. And he tells a lot of stories about grace in the book. I mean, it's worth going through just for that, stories about God being gracious. And he meets this woman who has a terrible story. And he even says, the story is so terrible he can barely keep listening to it. I mean, she undoubtedly had been through awful things herself. But she had just not just made terrible decisions, she had done terrible, even criminal things to her children Um, uh, and some of them he had to report even. And she was ashamed. She was crying. She just couldn't not confess anymore. And he eventually said, you know, have you ever considered going to the church with all this stuff up till now? They weren't exactly at a church, but she knew he was a Christian. Have you ever considered going to the church with all this stuff up to now? And she said, actually, the church is the very last place. I would go to say all of the things I'm most deeply ashamed of, never want to admit I would never, I'd go to anybody else besides the church. And why? Because the only category she had for the church was Mount Sinai. The only category she has is, I will let the worst things pass through my lips in front of church people when I'm ready to be condemned. And that is the only moment that I will admit what I've done before another human being. In other words, if Sinai is the only mountain that describes her relationship with God, she is in big, big trouble. And so are you. And so am I. But we're not at that mountain. So where are we? What is characteristic of this church? What is part of the mood? What is characteristic of God's gathered people? That's the second point. That's where the writer turns to the mountain you have come to. And I'm just going to reread a few verses. Verse 22 through 24. But you have come to. Where? Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A lot there. Let's walk through it a little bit. What is this Mount Zion in contrast to Mount Sinai, the terrible, trembling mountain? What's this Mount Zion? Well, Mount Zion physically, literally, was the central part of Jerusalem. It was raised. It was on something of a mountain. And this became the site of the temple. But in this passage, the writer doesn't just seem to be referring to the physical temple. He refers to it as the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. If he only meant us to understand a physical temple mount, brick and mortar temple, he wouldn't have put Heavenly in there. It's the heavenly Jerusalem that we come to. What do we make of this? Well, just look at how the place and the people are described. It reads like heaven. It reads like heaven. The city of the living God, verse 22. The heavenly Jerusalem. And look at the people. To innumerable angels in festal gathering. That's who you come to. Now, you have to see this isn't just talking about after we die and go to heaven. He's saying you have already come to this heavenly reality in which you participate. You are participating in something in the seen and unseen realm when you gather in the assembly, when you come together. Innumerable angels in festal gathering, having a feast, Myriads upon myriads of people, not screaming, not, oh my goodness, we're going to die, but having a feast to the assembly of the firstborn. That word is our word for church. Ekklesia means called out ones, the church, to the assembly of the firstborn. What does that mean? Well, it means all those who are in Christ receive all the privileges that usually the firstborn of an ancient family would get. The main inheritance would go to the firstborn. We all share an inheritance in Jesus. Everyone in Christ is part of this assembly. And to, verse 23, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Those who have gone before us in Christ. When we worship, we are gathering into a heavenly reality that can be characterized as joyful. Joyful. Instead of an atmosphere of terror, it is one of feasting and joy and grace. And it's an entrance into a company and a space that's bigger than we can imagine. Listen, I know I just said a lot. Think about the spaces that you enter into that are the most joyful, and there's something about joy. There's something about a real feast, biblically speaking, that isn't like flippant, that isn't just about like um, feeling good and getting full and getting entertained for a while, but a real rewarding feast that is satisfying to the nth degree. Have you ever experienced anything like that? See, the problem with even asking that question is we take our best experiences and like relate heaven to that when really it should be the other way around. We look at these scenes and say, do our parties resemble this? But, you know, we do what we can (laughs) because it's a fallen world we live in. Think about the other way though. And I think this is as much what's going on in the heart of the people that the writer of Hebrews is speaking to. When you think about coming to worship, what mountain are you coming to? Think about the people in this room maybe who you are not at peace with. Think about the people that you would really like to keep on Sinai. Think about the people in your life who you don't want to sit at a feast with, who you don't want to appreciate and enjoy the fact that they have the exact same inheritance as you, that woman Philip Yancey was talking to in Christ, has the same inheritance as he does. You don't like that all the time. The person who's on the other side of masks as you are, the person who's on the other side of politics, the person who's on the other side of the many things driving our culture and our churches apart from one another. There's a lot of people you would like to keep on Sinai. Listen, as a church, we need to name sin where we see it. We need to call out evil where we see it. So did Philip Yancey when he was speaking to that woman. But there's a way to do that and never leave Sinai. There's a way to speak into people's lives with the change that you want to see. And all the shared understanding between you is we are standing on Sinai. And the only word is judgment. The only word is condemnation. The only word is you didn't and therefore watch out. And there's no ultimate hope there. And Jesus would say, he does say this right after the teaching about the Lord's prayer. If you are treating other people only according to the rules of Sinai, you probably haven't left there yourself. And that is a terrifying thought. Those who are forgiven, forgive. And somebody said to me recently, you can't just tell those people to forgive for what happened to them. And I said back, I can't tell, I can't give them a timeline I can't demand and shout at them to forgive, but I can't not tell someone to forgive. Because it's simply and foundationally the only way it works on our mountain. It's what makes our mountain our mountain. And to withhold forgiveness is to say that when we come before God, Sinai defines the relationship. It does not. Listen, let me end like this, folks. Sinai is a really important mountain. It's where something eternally true about God is revealed, particularly God's seismic fury against sin. But Zion is where the world is actually healed because of what happened on Mount Zion, on the cross of Jesus Christ. Sinai is an important word about our relationship with God. It is not the final word about our relationship with God. Zion is, and that's where we are when we come to worship. Verse 24 says, we have come to Jesus. Here's what happens if you come to Jesus. If you don't have this, you have never come to Jesus. We come to the mediator of a new covenant. An entirely new arrangement between us and God. Not watch out and sin or watch out you're dead. Entirely new covenant. Entirely new arrangement. Entirely new relationship between us and God. We come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What does that mean? You need some biblical knowledge here. Abel was the victim of the first murder in the Bible. It's the first murder victim. And the blood of Abel cried out from the ground, the language of Genesis 4 says. It cried out a word of condemnation. I'm murdered. Bring me justice. The blood of Jesus cries out a different word. Not condemnation. It cries out mercy, grace for those who don't deserve it. When you come to this mountain, when you come to this assembly, it's got to smell like that. It's got to feel like that. Everything we do and say have to be done in relation to this mediator. There's a beautiful song we used to sing. We haven't sung it in a long time. It's got all these archaic words, but it's got a couple beautiful ones. It's called Arise, My Soul Arise. And it talks about what the wounds of Jesus scream out to the world. There's this line that says, five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. Five wounds. Hand, hand, legs, head, side. Five bleeding wounds he bears, received on Calvary. They pour out effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me. What do they plead? What do the wounds of Jesus plead? Forgive them. Oh, forgive, they cry." Forgive them, oh, forgive, they cry. Don't let that ransomed sinner die. That's a great song. That's what we come to. The word from Sinai is that person is evil, and the just punishment is death. Thing is, Zion actually agrees with that, but adds, and that's true. And I also beg God that that person would repent and know just how lost they are and know that the love of God in Christ would be poured out with such intensity that they would be saved and that the grace that saves them would flow out into relationships with other people. He is the God of both mountains. But this is the mountain we're at now. Because of Jesus. You know, verse 29, there's so much in these verses that I haven't touched on and I won't today. But the very last, very last verse says our God is a consuming fire. It's not like God's not holy, 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 consumingly righteous anymore. Verse 18 says, you've not come to a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. But verse 29, describing the other mountain, says he is still a consuming fire, you know. What does that mean? It means that our worship should still be reverent. You know, God still is holy, 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 tremendously holy. There's nothing casual about the images we have about worship in the heavens. There's just not. I know we call him Father and we should, but there is an irreverence that, I mean, right there, right there in verse 28 let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, there is a casual nature to worship that is like entirely inappropriate. And I think some of that has to be unlearned a little bit. Like we're coming to the one who is is so unspeakably holy that apart from Jesus, we really would be unable to stand and do nothing but run away screaming. And yet, His holiness is no longer experienced as terrifying and unapproachable. It's now experienced as welcoming and cleansing and healing. Just like on the day of Pentecost, the flame came of God's presence, but it didn't consume people. It like rested as a flame on their head. Like God's with you now. Like the burning bush was with the bush but didn't consume it. God's with us now without consuming us because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So... Folks, I've said a lot, what should be the mood of this service and of our services? I'm not saying we accomplish it. I'm asking, what are we aiming for? We're aiming for heaven. We're aiming for what's characteristic of this mountain where it's kind of permeable between heaven and earth. Us coming to meet with angels and those who have gone before, united by the Spirit of God through his word. Acceptable worship, it's always filled with awe, but it also should be filled with greater joy than anything we've ever experienced. This is the way on our mountain. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.